Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. It's always special when we get a, a head-to-head, a meeting between our three, and in this case, we've waited a full year, and we get a rematch of Rafael Nadal versus Novak Djokovic at Roland Garros, this time in the quarterfinal. We're going to start by uh, just addressing how they got there, what they did in their fourth round matches, and then we will uh, discuss the potential outcomes and what we'll be looking for uh, tomorrow night, night session on court Philippe Chatrier, which is also a talking point that we'll get to. Uh, Let's start with the five-set win for Nadal against Felix. Third time a player is able to take Rafa to five. Um, Nadal did it. In or sorry, Djokovic did it in 2013, and John Isner did it in 2011. Felix does it, but Nadal remains undefeated in in fifth sets. Joel, what did you make of of a performance that was uh, on one hand impressive from Nadal and a great match? On another hand, he he had to sweat and he got pushed very hard uh, against FAA. He did. He really had to come up with some things that were kind of a uh, Rafa like come up with some big shots, some big moments after a terrible, terrible start. I mean, he was just getting pummeled at the start of that match. And he just, he found his way. He clawed into some points. He, you know, did what he does is the intensity he creates. I think that's a big thing. And I think it forces the other player to up their ante and realize they've got to really get into fifth gear and hit big shots. And, and um, I mean, it was quintessential Nadal. I can't say it's quintessential Nadal, fifth set at Roland Garros he's only done it two other times but it was just the stuff that makes him so uh, so good on clay but also also revealing about where he's at with his game I thought it was a great match from both players uh, um, iconic you know epic pro, uh, match memorable for this tournament um, I looking at the overall stats for the match, um, Nadal, if it seemed like an unusual match for him because it went to five sets at Roland Garros, he actually won the match overall in a way that he always wins, which is pummeling the other guy on second serve points one. And it's really um, not something you often notice during the match because it's not like we talked about this before. It's not like Nadal has the second serve that is a massive kick serve or anything like that. But it, it does relate to what he does after the serve itself and what he does with that point that the other guy doesn't do. And um so he beat FAA in winning percentage on second serve points. There's a little bit of a discrepancy because there's two scorekeepers and I have a theory as to why, but um, one uh, stat group had Rafa beating uh, FAA on winning percentage of second serve points, one 73 to 51, which is massive. 
Um, I mean, that's the difference in the match right there. Infosys had the the uh, difference being 66 to 47, which is still, still a large big. gap. Yeah. So, you know, if you think about it, that's the whole match. And, and it wasn't, um, you know, I looked at um, rally length categories and it wasn't zero to four because that was actually um, not the predominant category in this match. The rallies were going a little bit longer. It was that middle category, five to eight. And uh, Rafa won that one. And so that lets you know that if he's winning a second serve points and it's the five to eight is, is a big category, that it's not the plus one, it's actually the plus two where uh, Rafa's doing a lot of damage. So um, in, in many ways, I guess it was a different match, but in many ways it was the same way that he always wins. I have a question about, stuff, about the, uh, those two different places. How could that be? I mean, that's just raw, that's just raw data, that's not, you know, some of our stuff about the subjective evaluation of errors and unforced errors. And something. you're referring, Joel, you're referring to how could the two stats groups have different second serve? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I have a theory. Um, my the one theory that why the stat groups have different um, numbers when it comes to uh second serves and second serve points one and all sorts of things relating to second serve is that if a player double faults, um, somebody is going to see that as a second serve point one or lost. And someone is, else is going to see that as, well, the ball was never in play. So it's, it's a point loss, but it's not oh, okay. necessarily a point loss on second serve. Okay, and there's some other little discrepancies of surrounding this that, you know, I, I want to fix in tennis someday, but it's kind of low on the priority list. It's a, but, the key thing is, but no matter what metric, Nadal won at least 66% or 73% of his second serve points. And usually you want to be north of 50. Right. And so that's, that's, um, I mean, if you're, <clears throat> you're world-class, if you're above 50%, Nadal is the all-time leader in this stat category career, almost every surface, but especially on clay. And this is just how he wins. Let's get to the bottom though, of, of why this happened. Nadal, Amy, you mentioned five through eight, nine plus as well. Mm -hmm. Felix wasn't winning rallies against Nadal. You know, mm -hmm. FAA had an amazing serving day, uh, amazing serve plus one, get to the net yeah. right away. Bang, bang, tennis, quick points on serve. Felix was awesome there. A as soon as they were either a neutral, of course, Nadal can do the same thing, serve plus one, right? So on Nadal serve, FAA wasn't winning in, in that respect. It was for great first serve or, or he was kind of in trouble. Well, that was the game plan. That was obvious. Look, it's clear that was a game plan. You could see from the first 10 minutes of the match that the FAA game plan was, I'm going to go after you, Rafa, because I'm going to go after you and I've got to win points quickly. I mean, I think that was his real, the, the real plan because, wanna, I mean, long rally, Nadal, Clay, and, uh, and, and Felix, I don't think Clay is his, uh, his best surface, the way he plays. I mean, I think he's better on uh, faster surfaces, more the reward, more aggression. And uh, yeah, so he didn't want to get into that. Guys, that 4-3 game that Nadal broke in the fifth set, though, Felix did everything right. He made every first serve. He did not make a single error. He was not passive. He, he hit approach shots on short balls. He hit good approach shots. And he was still watching the ball go by. 
Yeah. Well, Gil, I mean, imagine that you're playing and you serve the serve of your life. Like you're in your head, you're thinking, yeah, I got that. That's a good one. Let's attack. I can't serve any better than that. And the ball just comes back. You know, it's, it's been neutralized. Um, it, I think it's, it's a, it becomes when the ball be, comes back to neutral, like you said, it becomes a confidence game and an experience game. And that's where Nadal has the edge. Well, you saw even Felix at the end when they shook hands, he wasn't even that upset. He was actually kind of, wow, you're just too good for me today. <clears throat> he shouldn't be upset. He no, played I a really good fifth set in particular and still lost. He did. It'll be an interesting thing for him to look over that match and study it and think, how'd that happen? It did Okay, I guess the guy came up with shots, but <laughs> it's just, it's usually, that's usually not how even world-class matches go, you know, where the, but that's, that's, I mean, I remember when, um, when I started writing about Nadal and I talked to some of the people who'd seen him more, they said, that's Nadal. And it's like in, you know, it's like the soccer players who are known by their one name, you know, Pele, you know, mm -hmm. it's just Nadal and he has that special power. I mean, he should be a subject of a, of a podcast or something. <laughs> there have been, I mean, several recent matches that kind of fit into that category. The Australian Open final against Medvedev, um, the, the match against Shapovalov at the Australian Open that you, you sort of felt like Shapo should have won the match. I mean, how many times throughout his career have we seen this, this type of uh, this category of match where Rafa does his sort of Houdini act? Well, I know I I know what you mean, Amy. And the Medvedev fifth set, I agree. But the the I think Chapo Chapo wasn't good in the fifth set, and Nadal won. Well, that's true. Right, that's true. Yeah, because then Nadal breaks you down that other way. That someone like Chapo is going to kind of disintegrate. He's going to wear down over the pressure. But in this case, Felix kept asking reasonable, seemingly reasonable questions, and right. Nadal was like, "Wow, that is some answer." And that's that's one of the reasons why. Um, what we are, one topic in tennis is who, who you have play for the fate of the planet. And of our three, I think I've said this before, right now I would pick Nadal, though Novak, Novak is pretty close, but it would be one of those two. I mean, with all due respect, it would be those, one of those two, Nadal uh, and on clay. Well, that's why we're excited about the, next, the match he's going to play with Novak. Well, let's talk about uh, the one thing that's less, positive and, and more concerning for Nadal, which Joel, you mentioned the, the poor start and it really was. I mean, I, I've never seen Nadal miss so many nothing backhands for no reason. Um, and then in the fourth set, there was another just a, a lapse and the unforced errors count in the first set and the fourth set were like 15 and 13. And in none of the other sets that Nadal won were even above six. So it, there was a clear difference in just how many mistakes and and generous um, errors Nadal was gifting Felix's way. Just in those small moments, and even end of the first set was fine, end of the fourth set was fine. It was just too late on both occasions. There were just those two lapses of focus where uh, I don't know that we've really seen that. Certainly we didn't for Novak against Schwartzman in the fourth round, straight set victory, no problem. Is it a concern that that Nadal is just having these these moments throughout his matches where Novak seems to just be pretty much on point for the entirety? I don't think it's about Novak with Rafa. I think it's about Rafa with Rafa. And I would pay $100 to watch that day off practice session 
because that is going to be one big, that's the Nadal deal. It's kind of like you double down on homework. You put in the time. I mean, you, you really sweat it out because then it's, it's both building the good work habits and it's also kind of getting in the place to do the things he needs to do. It's almost like a, he wants to punish himself for starting slowly. So I'm going to learn to not start slowly. So I'm going to do something that helps you not do that because he knows that's not a good thing to do. <clears throat> and hopefully in his mind, maybe not in his mind knowing Nadal, but in my mind, I think, okay, can we recreate the 2020 Roland Garros magic? Get after that kind of start? How would that, they, like he did with Novak in the final that year? <clears throat> I mean, what's interesting is that Felix Ojealiasim has played Novak and Rafa this month and played them both really well. And he's got nothing to show for it. He played Medvedev great in Australia too. <laughs> Poor guy. He's like right there, right? Yes. But but the the right there is is like this much. Oh, it's yeah, it's a it, huge leap. Well, it's kind of like yeah, for all the process, where's my outcome? But I think I think though, to get back into his mind, I think he feels he had plenty to, not to show for it in a in a W, but kind of like okay, okay, I'm Felix. I'm still a young man. I can. My time will come. And I think, I think some of these guys are, are hoping with some of the injuries and the layoffs that the three, okay, they're 35. Nadal is going to be 36 on June 3rd. The time is, <laughs> the time has got to come. I mean, it's different than being um, the Burdick, Sangha. Or Dimitrov, even Dimitrov, who's like, wow, I just floated my, my career away waiting for these guys to get older. Not that he hasn't had a great younger. career. Yeah, Burdick, four or five years younger, right? So just watching these guys, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's interesting. I've got to come up with some uh, analogy, like waiting for waiting for someone to, well, waiting for someone to retire at the company. When do I get to be the CEO? When's this guy going to leave? Yeah. All right, let's talk about meeting number 10 at Roland Garros between Nadal and Djokovic, which um, that's, that's a really high number at one event for two players of their career. We know, we know why it's the case. It's because they don't really lose to other players very much. Um, Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Djokovic having uh, having won last year, having won two out of the last three. If you if you go back to 2015, um, but you have 2020 in the middle, which was a final, and and Nadal winning that one handedly. So this has been such a such a fascinating rivalry at this event in particular. I guess let's first rehash kind of last year. What does last year's result, Joel? mean for this year well i think if you're novak you feel quite 
encouraged because he withstood a strong Nadal effort, his own slow starts. I mean, that was one of the rare times uh, one of these guys has beaten the other after losing the first set. I mean, I think I saw like of the 50, I mean, mostly who wins the first set usually wins. So in this case, Novak lost the first set. So I think he feels, wow, look how I withstood Rafa. And by the fourth set, Nadal was pretty worn down. I think two things. One, be extremely grateful and and clear your schedule and calendar to watch this because you never know when this is going to be the last time that these two meet, if, if. Um, And then the other thing that comes to mind is just the time on court. You know, there was a study done in 2017 and it kind of, it looked at Grand Slam's time on court for the men the last, um, I don't know, six or seven years. So it was like 2010 to 2017. And it determined that time on court had no impact. But things have changed because our, our big three, in particular Novak and, um, and Rafa, have continued to win and they've gotten older. So I, I wonder doing that study again, looking at more recent years and also controlling for age, I do have this perception that um, time on court matters a little bit. And Novak has played this tournament about as efficiently as anyone could play it. And now Rafa has been dinged a little. So um, there's something to that. I, I, I really believe there's something to that. Novak will be the favorite going in. And um, I would just like to see a, a great five set match. Well, and also there's time and also sets lost. I mean, look how smoothly this has gone for Novak and Rafa. When you lose, when you lose a first set, you know you're not in the lead for at least another set and some more. So there's a whole other, that takes a wear and tear regardless of duration. I mean, that's one of those things too about there's the duration part, but there's also just the, the stress, the stress part. I don't know, guys. A fully fit Nadal should be able to recover from a, what was it, four hours? Let me get the the match time. Um, Oh, I don't see it here. Do you guys remember? Um, In the four? Yeah, I can can check that too. Um, It was uh, something in the, it was quite long. Yeah, but I don't think it's his. It's his first long match of, of the event for Nadal. If he's, if his preparation was proper, if he is as fit, as as I think he would want to be, then he should have no problem with the day off recovering for this quarterfinal match physically. Now, is Nadal fully fit? That's actually a question, given what happened in Rome. Uh, what did his training look like in the lead up to this event? But but if the answer to that question is yes, this is normal Nadal, then I think no problem, he recovers. That match is 421, the one with Felix. But the recovery, it's not just the physiological recovery of okay, measure my levels and see that I can do things. It's the mental part and it's the- I agree. Confidence and I don't think- But still, you have to be able to play a long match at a slam and then be able to play the next time. I mean, I I know that it's impossible to go through an entire two weeks playing, uh, draining marathon after marathon, but first long match of, of the event, I feel like Rafa- should be okay to enter the next one close to a hundred percent. I think so. But I also think when it comes to things like the whole thing of getting through a five setter, 
if you're Zverev, even at this stage of your career, that still gives you, yeah, good, I got through that. Rafa Nadal at this stage isn't say like, a, yeah, good, I got a, I got a tough five setter. Now that gives me my confidence because I've only won this tournament 13 times. So I just think, I think the relationship to these things. So I think, yeah, I think he should be, okay, well then let's put it this way. Who's the first set matter more to? It matters more. I mean, given what happened, especially last year. Everything. Yeah, it matters more to Nadal because I have questions about Nadal's endurance, even, you know, which feels you got to acknowledge the Australian Open final and the fact that we were saying the exact same thing going into that match. But (laughs) but but I I still have questions about Nadal's endurance and I don't about Novak's. Well, uh, just being at RG this past week, I got to meet with three different um, data people that that do for the ATP tour that do work with players on the ATP tour. And one of them said to me, um, I said something about Alcaraz having some being tested early and, and what impact that would have. And he said to me, so often, and, and I assume that this is like a data point, even though he didn't have the specific numbers in front of him. He said, so often the player that goes on to win the Grand Slam had some tests along the way. Well, that's not typically how we think of Rafa or, or even Novak a lot of times, because a lot of times they just sail through. But um, if that's the case and that every player gets a test, a five set test and, and goes on typically um, to win and you always look back at that one match, um, then Rafa, you know, it, it's, it's nothing out of the ordinary. It's nothing he can't handle. But my only concern is the foot. Full stop. Well, uh, I mean, I, I think there was a stat. Nadal has only dropped six total sets in the first week at yeah. Roland Garros. So yeah. I don't know that that's been the pattern with him. <laughs> no, no, not at this tournament, at least. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, what about the, uh, the scheduling and the conditions? You know, Nadal likes to play in the heat. He thinks it helps his forehand. I, I think he likes to, I haven't heard him say this. I think he likes to get a sweat going. Um, and he, he appreciates, you know, playing in the sun and in during the day. Uh, Djokovic really just cares about temperatures being cool. I don't know how mu- how he feels about the liveliness of the bounce. And if he prefers the ball to bounce a little bit less on Nadal's forehand, I don't know. Uh, court speed, I don't, I don't really know. Uh, but there's a clear preference, at least from the players themselves, Novak acknowledging this even in press, that you know Novak would would rather play the night session and that Rafa would rather play uh, the day session. So uh, we have the decision. It's going to be a night session, which is uh, really it comes down to decisions based on television and which uh, rights which rights owners the tournament organizers want to take care of and give this marquee match to. And they go with Amazon prime who has the night session, but Amy, what is the, uh, what is the effect on the match? I mean, I think about 2020 and how wrong everybody was about what could, how the conditions would have the effects in that October closed roof final between Djokovic and Nadal. Well, uh, again, and I've referenced this many times, um, Shane Leonge of Data Driven Sports Analytics and I did a study 
a couple of years ago about conditions with Nadal, temperature, you know, night, day, balls, the whole nine yards. And we found that it had absolutely no effect. So while that may be Rafa's preference, the reality is he doesn't really need that as, as an edge. Now he may feel that in the heat and the, the sunshine, he gets more action off of his forehand. But um, he can win without it. I mean, and, and I saw him play at night uh, this past week and um, forehand was jumping just fine. Um, I haven't seen the, the temperature, but again, like this may be just a case of Rafa kind of downplaying, you know, as he does um, and um, trying to um, set expectations for the match. Well, the air is thinner by day. He likes playing by day. There's a lot of people who are, you know, tennis is kind of more meant to be played by day, even though it's been played plenty at night at other places. Um, uh, Novak maybe wants a ball that's lower bouncing, a little bit lower bouncing, though who knows if how, or that he perceives as lower bouncing, whether it actually is or isn't, you know, we'd have, we'd have to see. And uh, also, by the way, one of the reasons it, that- It is, it is physics. It's definitely, you know, higher temperature, Higher bounce, lower temperature, lower bounce. It has to do with the air in the ball and whether it's expanding or not expanding. This was also done. Um, Alcaraz has played several night matches. <clears throat> so the thinking was let him have a day, let him have a day match, not have him be Mr. Knight. So this wasn't strictly a matter of Novak and Rafa preferences. And, and I was wondering, what are they going to flip a coin or other things? And, and who knows all this uh, kind of manipulation of, around that stuff. I also think, I mean, I could be wrong about this, but I also think it's a better time of day or night um, to get more of the world seeing it, particularly the United States. I don't know, I could be wrong about that. I don't but think, I just don't think they care about the United States, but you're right. It will, like Tennis Channel is happy. There's no doubt right. about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, intuitively, as a as a grand slam you want as many people watching it around the world as possible so that might have been a consideration i like that and I, it's always makes me funny when people say yeah it's doing for tv i said yeah it's done for an audience it's not done just for television it's done for television <laughs> the most amount of people and <clears throat> when they really are mean to say it's being done for the public so the most amount of people can see it at a time yeah. uh convenient for them yeah, I mean, this was this was kind of a unique case, though, Joel, because in France, that would be like, let's say, hypothetically, for one of the slams, Tennis Channel had the night session, ESPN had the day session, and it was the US Open, let's say we're talking about, right? So now you have your US TV providers, and you need to choose which rights holder you're going to take care of. That's the situation that France is in with French TV, France TV having the day session and Amazon having the night session. So it's kind of unique. I wonder who paid more, like who paid more per per slam, per Good. French Open. Good question. Tactics. You know, last year we talked a lot about the Djokovic forehand, especially that that sharp cross-court angle, Nadal struggling out of his backhand corner when he's uh, you know, really pushed out wide in a, in a very violent manner from Djokovic's heavy cross-court forehands. We talked about Djokovic's returning to the Nadal backhand to avoid the forehand. What are you, what are you most interested to see? What are the major questions that you think might uh, decide this match tactically, Joel? 
Well, then you look at things and how Nadal serve direction. So where does he aim his serve to blunt certain things Novak does? Or so if he serves to the forehand, let's say in the ad court, is the foreign return still may come to the backhand, but is it less likely to hurt to the foreign? I mean, I think there's some interesting chess that's going to go on with, the, with some of the serve patterns with how Nadal deploys his serve. Because it's not, one of the things that's tricky for him versus Novak, he can't just always go with the wide ad court serve. Novak is such a good returner. And we saw in the match last year how good Novak was at returning down the line in the ad court through a, a narrow sliver that a lot of returners don't hit that well or, don't, or aren't as productive with, or even if they hit it. Like if, if Nadal serves to Roger Federer in the ad court, and Federer hits a backhand down the line, he's not going to do nearly as much with that backhand as Novak would. So that's why Roger has gone to more really driving at cross court. But it's a different thing for Rogers. So with Novak, I mean, Novak creates some real interesting questions for a server like Nadal, because Nadal, I, and Nadal's an effective server, but he's not necessarily a great server. It's an effective server, but it's not like his delivery. You know, we're not talking Pete Sampras here with what he does with it. It's how he backs it up, but backing it up versus Novak, that's a real challenge. Yeah, both guys are using analytics. And since we know that neither guy is, is going to hit a gabillion aces because um, that's not the surface and that's not what they've been doing in the tournament and that's not what conditions are that you're really now ta talking about with your approach to the serve is really thinking about the plus one and for both guys it's how do i get that forehand where do i serve to get a forehand um, for my plus one and the forehand is what i'm most I'm very fascinated in. And by the way, uh, I also agree with Joel's question of is Nadal going to not serve 75% to Djokovic's backhand, which he did in Rome last year. And we had a discussion. It worked. And we talked about why it worked. And then he did it again at Roland Garros and it didn't work. So what's it going to be this time? But Amy, to your point with the plus one, I feel like Djokovic's, and I really want Hawkeye data on this. Um, I, I would really appreciate that if I if someone could could get that. Um, I'll, I'll work on it. I can okay. work on it. Sure. I think forehand speed and RPM for Djokovic 2018 to 2020, I think that was down from what we've seen in 2021 and here in 2022. I think Novak has realized on clay my forehand must be a bigger weapon if I'm going to compete with Rafa. Uh, and I think he's made that happen. And I'm very curious to see if he can match Nadal again, forehand for forehand and have the same kind of success doing, doing damage um, in these heavy conditions. It requires a lot of power and that that power has, has generally been in the corner of Nadal on the forehand side. But I feel like Djokovic has, potentially close that gap quite a bit. I think, I think um, the speed, it would be something interesting to look at. And I'll try to ask one of the guys that has access to Hawkeye, if he can look into that, but, um, or gals, but uh, also Gil, the spin. I wonder if Novak has flattened, flattened out his forehand a little bit in, in certain conditions. Um, because to me, the, he's a little more linear on that wing. But I could be wrong about that. Um, 
he just seems to be um, taking away time a little bit more and um, a little more efficient in that regard. But it's a good question. I'll look into it. We should also look to how they each play in the front part of the courts. I mean, Novak, we, you know, towards the end of last year, we saw that one match in Paris where he served and volleyed some. I'm not saying he's going to serve and volley 30 times versus Nadal on clay, but just the ways that they put themselves in other positions to create more doubt, to try to win more points. Uh, Nadal too. Nadal, I mean, Nadal, what struck me in that 2020 final was how much innovation Rafa brought to it, whether it's coming to net sometimes. I mean, just going right after Novak and just really taking it to him. And I think for Nadal, a tell shot is the down the line forehand. I mean, we know it's, there's going to be the cross court, but how much he really lashes and goes after that down the line forehand, how much he looks to kind of control points and to take and to win some of those points at the net. Because when you win them at the net, at least you let the guy know, hey, you can't just always push the reset button on me. I'm going to be doing this sometimes too. So I think it's a real interesting, um, you know, again, a chess-like thing of seeing how, how, how their forehands behave, how, um, how, they, how they serve. Uh, Novak, Novak, were, you know, again, he hasn't played that much tennis this year, and he's been in the, but he's been reaching this nice quality level. So, but now it's like, now it's Rafa. Now it's Rafa. All right, so let's end on this. Um, you know, what, what might this mean in terms of, uh, in terms of the outcome of this match when we kind of look back on, on the rivalry? I mean, I think if Novak uh, pulls off another win, then I think you start to look at this chapter of, you know, this specific last couple of years chapter of their careers. And you could say, okay, Djokovic actually did something here and found, uh, found a way to, to beat Nadal at Roland Garros if he does it two times in a row. Um, and then for, you know, Nadal, it can be kind of, all right, 2021, that was, that was a one-time thing. Uh, and that's continuously not going to be the norm when we play at this event. And let's not forget, though, for Nadal, if he wins that, and then and let's just, that's a ways away, he wins the tournament. Oh, wait, I'm halfway to the calendar slam. Nadal, Nadal goes on to win this match and win the tournament. Then it's like suddenly Nadal, for the first time ever, is halfway to a calendar Grand Slam at the age of 36. Not that we're even thinking yep. he's going to play. Then right, it's I'm, interesting questions about, we've talked before about, come on, is he even going to play Wimbledon? But then I just realized, well, wait a second. If he wins the first two majors of the year, he skips Wimbledon? And if he loses, he skips Wimbledon? No, you know he should no. still play. No, no, I think I think if he I think if he loses, I think he skips Wimbledon. I think it would. I think the only thing I I I think that based on his physicality and how he's going to emerge. I mean, he's got he's got. Okay, let's look. Let's just pretend. Let's okay. He get he gets through Novak, and that will be physical if he win. That's going to be very physical. Winner of Zverev or Alcaraz, that's physical too. And then, and then a final, which is just a final. And no matter who you're playing, it's still a final. So that's, he's looking at at least nine sets of some pretty heavy duty clay action. So, but, uh, but that's, that's the Rafa view. <clears throat> the Novak view, the Novak view is, oh, the first major of the year that I'm playing, I beat Rafa. And I, and then let's see what happens to this potential generational thing, whether it's Zverev or Alcaraz. So very interesting. Either way, it'll be 
dramatic and interesting, but I don't feel like I, I will know what it all means until I've seen the match and how it plays out. Very fair. Uh, it's going to have a weird feel though, because you know, you haven't won Roland Garros, you know, right. just from winning the match. <laughs> Not like... even close. <laughs> right. So, so, you know, that's, that's going to be a, a big part of it, right? I mean, we're not even talking about no, you know, Nadal extending to, to 22 or, or Novak going to 21. We're not even there yet. We're just talking about one quarterfinal match here. Uh, but of course, it's one that, that we're very much looking forward to. Uh, that'll do it for this episode of Three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it if you leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, and subscribe. We'll see you next time on the next episode of Three.